0: Hi, welcome to the Spotlight Report. I'm your host, Logan Graves. This is a monthly podcast where we dive into topics that pique our interest. They typically cover optics and science, but honestly, they can be quite broad. You can find out more about the Spotlight Report and find all of our episodes, as well as comment or like the podcast, on our new location, which is on the ELE Optics Community Forum. That location is community.eleoptics.com, and you'll find the Spotlight Report there. Thanks for listening. So we're with, hi, this is Spotlight Report? Sure, okay, okay. This week on the Spotlight Report, we were sitting down with Dr. Chris Ford. Uh, Chris has been a guest on the Spotlight Report before, where he was talking about his research on uh, plasmas and nuclear engineering Since that last episode, Dr. Ford has graduated and obtained his Ph.D. in nuclear engineering with an emphasis on plasma work, and he has gone on to a career outside of that field actually. So Chris, thank you for sitting down with us today. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your dissertation was?
1: So my dissertation was on pulsed plasmas in order to enhance diagnostic capability. Um, which is a fancy way of saying that I shrunk some error bars and got a PhD for it. <laughs> Perfect.
0: <laughs> well, I think that uh, entirely covers the topic. Then, um, <laughs> can you can you? Uh, I, I believe that your your dissertation covered two primary topics. So, uh, can you emphasize uh, and remind us a little bit about what that first topic was and what caused you to go into plasma work?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I guess to start off, like I was interested in going to plasma specifically because I had these naive dreams of uh, working on fusion and developing a fusion reactor that would save the world and solve climate change and all this stuff. (laughs) Um, But I realized very quickly upon entering grad school that It's probably still 30 years out in the most, like, rosy scenario, and I didn't want to spend my career working on a problem that I might not see ever actually get solved. Um, So So, optimistic, at least. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that people are working on it, and I think that people should be working on it, but I'm too... Uh, short-sighted or i need like a faster payoff than like potentially 30 years you know
0: no um, I, I'm, I think I, yeah i think that's super valid and i i think it's also underappreciated by a lot of students where you can get into something and like you said like you want to save the world or you want to make a big impact and you need to kind of face up to reality sometimes and be like this is not getting done in my lifetime or in the next
1: 10 years or whatever the case may be yeah, and it wasn't like it wasn't in the sense that like I think that it's a stupid project, just in the sense that like I wouldn't be able to keep myself motivated to keep going, right? right? Like that's just me being honest about my own psychology. Like it's I think I think of it as like cathedral science, in the sense that like the old school cathedrals were built by generations of masons and stuff. And that's still like a beautiful project and it's cool. But I'm short-sighted
0: sure so so i I apologize i interrupted you so you you went into it because you wanted to save the world but you realized uh it just isn't necessarily feasible due to your own uh, motivations so what was that first project then that you worked on
1: um so my first project was actually working on um fuel rod cladding in uh traditional nuclear reactors, uh, I was a TA for a senior design project and we actually showed that we could use plasma to put a coating on zir- zirconium fuel rods It would act as a, uh, an additional chemical barrier that would prevent, it would basically prevent Fukushima or give you more time before the explosion occurred at Fukushima, um, so, which is kind of neat.
0: Yeah, important, obviously.
1: Yeah, and like has immediate ramifications. And then it was like one of these situations where we tried to patent it, and then the patent office at our university—they have lawyers that help people do this. Um, They said that we needed more data, but then funding ran out to continue doing more experiments. So we couldn't like beef up the demonstration. So now those fuel rods that I worked so hard on for that like first year are just sitting on a shelf, and like nothing came of it. So. (laughs) <laughs> Perfect. Other, another way <laughs> to be disappointed in grad school is to do something that's cool and it doesn't go anywhere.
0: <laughs> so uh, we can already tell, uh, you know, as listeners that that uh, that you're very optimistic and happy about all of grad school and there's no downsides to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what we talked about the first time because I didn't listen to it. <laughs> like,
0: I, Prefer I to listen to myself talk.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So after you finished that uh, that really promising project that satisfied all your hopes and dreams, um, what did you move on to after that?
1: So after that, like I um, received funding from Samsung Electronics for the semiconductor industry, and um, they were interested in looking at pulsed plasmas for expanding the uh, like chemistry regimes that they're able to operate in. Basically most of the semiconductor manufacturers are struggling to keep uh, Moore's law going in the sense that like doubling uh, processing power every two years, that's sort of slowing down and they're starting to realize that for the past 10 to 15 years, they're doing a lot of more like techni- technician or like engineering stuff rather than understanding basic science and physics. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started reaching out to, to academics more and I was lucky enough to get funded by them and really the first half of my dissertation was sort just, of just by chance. We were taking a uh, electron density measurement and using diagnostics that other people had used before in the past, but just in a pulse regime, we were seeing this strange uh, signal in the data and we had no idea what it was. And we thought of a couple possibilities and I like sort of spearheaded that project and Figured out what was going on, and it turns out that we were by turning the uh, power off to power the plasma. We were removing the perturbation surrounding the probe because whenever you insert a diagnostic into a plasma, you it's like unavoidable. You're going to disturb the local region.
0: So let me so and, so let me pause you there just really quick. So yeah, for our listeners who aren't um, super familiar with plasmas, I'm going to do a poor job explaining them, but it's. Actually, I'm not going to do a poor job. I'm going to let you explain what a plasma is because <laughs> that's your specialty.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, I guess the working definition would be easiest to understand is that it's a charged gas and we really care about the electron density. That's what I want to talk about a lot, um, because kind of like in a nuclear reactor, you care about neutrons causing other reactions. They, they're what drives everything else. It's the same for a plasma, but with electrons instead. So when we turn on a power generator, it creates electric fields that accelerate the electrons, create more ions, and also really useful reactive uh, chemical species. Like, I can split fluorine gas into single fluorine atoms that are highly reactive on a uh, silicon wafer, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, so those are basically the two things I'm going to talk about the most, uh, electron density and uh, free radicals.
0: Okay, so, and, and why do you care about doing a diagnostic of the plasma?
1: Uh, well, because electron density drives all the other reactions. I mean, I, because electrons drive all the reactions, knowing how many there are <laughs> would be a good thing. And um, a corollary to that is, like, knowing their energy would be a good thing. Um, but I didn't really work a whole, a whole lot on that. That would be an electron temperature or electron energy distribution function so diagnostic.
0: Right. But basically... Um, it's good to know more about it, so you have to take diagnostics on it. But you're implying that the very act of taking a diagnostic affects the plasma itself, right?
1: Yeah, um, it's uh, like a pretty common problem in science in general. Like, how do you measure something without perturbing it as well? Like, so I always need like psychology. <laughs> What's that?
0: <laughs> I said a steady hand, Chris. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um. So it turns out that like when we were taking this electron density measurement and a pulsed plasma, which is just a plasma that the power that we're using to sustain it is turning off and on, rather than doing a steady state, um, everything equalizes uh, in the long term. It turns out that we had this like strange signal. Um, where the electron density was actually increasing when we turned the power off. And like that just doesn't make sense at first blush because power is how you create more electrons. Um, like if I accelerate electrons through a the field, look collide with something, and then potentially ionize more gas, create more electrons, and it's an avalanche effect, right? Until it reaches some steady state. So we had looked at this and been like, why is... Is this real? And we've measured it several times and then we came up with a couple of poss- possibilities for what it could be. And I was given the task of like explaining what this thing was and um, it was very much not like uh, like a, a scientific project where you have foresight and you think that like, oh, I'm going to do this and if it works, then this will happen it was very much like, oh, well, we found something. Let's try and explain it and see if it's useful
0: right and it turns out that it really was and <clears throat>
1: that um i was able to show that this uh, active pulsing the plasma oh. removed the perturbation around the probe to a very significant degree and allowed you to get more accurate uh, electron density measurement hmm. and that's a pretty unique approach like no one had done that uh or stumbled across it <laughs> you could say um even though pulse positive has been around for a while and people have taken measurements with them, we think that we were just kind of in a lucky place where we had the um, time resolution that we saw it clearly and then put in the extra effort to explain what was actually going on.
0: Which, I mean, I, I, that touches on two topics that I think are really important um, for people considering the sciences or early on in their careers. Uh, and I'll definitely, I want to get through the, the history of your dissertation, but I'll bring them up later, which is uh, how non-reflective of reality typical labs are, um, and also, uh, the topic of like how do you choose a project, but, but before that, so was that your final project for your dissertation?
1: Oh <laughs> uh, no, that was, uh, that was like one side diagnostic and what happened was, uh, Samsung had been like, "Cool, that's great. Can we also get a diagnostic for uh, free radical reactions on surfaces?" And I had developed that um, for my lab, but I pretty much just copied what um, other people had done in the literature. And then I went and presented it on a conference because grad students need to have something to talk about at the conferences. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it wasn't like groundbreaking or anything, but I was just trying to show, like, "Hey, does this seem legitimate? Did this okay?" And um, Someone in the crowd stood up and said, uh, very kindly, and very politely, this is a French guy, he's really cool, um, like, you had to assume, I had to assume a gas temperature. and He pointed that out and said, like, that leads to error throughout the entire measurement because in the act of pulsing a plasma to get this measurement, um, you're heating and expanding the gas and then cooling and shrinking it over and over again from pulse to pulse, and that causes a lot of variability in all of your densities that you care about. Mm-hmm. And without quantifying that, you have no idea how it's contributing to your signal. And uh, I spoke with him afterwards and I went back home shamedly and like did the calculations and realized that like, yes, he was right, I probably had like a factor of two or two and a half error because I had to make these gas temperature assumptions. And so um, that led me into my preliminary exam where I basically said I will combine another diagnostic for gas temperature measurements with this surface chemistry, free radical measurement in order to make it more accurate. And, um, one piece of advice I give everyone going to their prelim is to make it very clear what actionable, like accomplishments you are proposing that the committee, like clear you on. And I even like stated, um, That although I know I can do this gas temperature measurements because I had already done a little bit of work on it um, and developing it, I don't know if it will actually fix the problem with this other original measurement for free radical densities. And I said, but the good thing would be that I would bring in a new diagnostic to the lab, even if it may not be new to the entire literature, right? Right. And uh, the committee said, like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And,
0: uh, well, and that's, know, just, that's just a good rule of thumb overall as well. Like You should well define the scope of what your project is going to be, right?
1: Yeah, but then also I think that um, when I was first considering grad school and I was talking to a chemist, she had said that like one of the biggest mistakes that a grad student can make is to say, I'm going to build this molecule and it will do this. And if you can't, then you didn't get anything out of it, right? Whereas for me, it was like, I'm going to make this diagnostic that will hopefully enhance this other one. But at least if it doesn't enhance the other one, we still have this new diagnostic for my group, right?
0: Yeah, um, you're not you're not defining necessarily the... The difference in the, is like the chemistry example, you're saying like, this is what I'm going to discover. You're predetermining the result of the experiment. Whereas with yours, you're saying, here's an experiment I'm going to do Worst case, we have some tool,
1: right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And like, it's it's also to go back to the chemistry example, it, it would be more like uh, a better choice would be to say, I'm going to create this molecule and we have no idea what it's going to do, but I know that we can create it and we're going to figure out what it can do. Right, right. And like, because it's more open ended, it's more, you're not going to lock yourself into potentially spending years on something for it to fail and then you have to start over.
0: Yeah, which it's. Um I interrupted you earlier, so I apologize. But um, but you mentioned, and we've discussed this before, you mentioned uh, psychology or maybe the social sciences. They have a big issue with replication. And one thing that they try to do about it is to do pre-registration, which is the scenario of like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to predetermine the result I'm looking for. But
1: yeah. Anyways. Yeah, and I don't know how much that's been taken off, like in terms of uh, like journals requiring it. But it seems like a good idea just without me being a social scientist, you know?
0: Yeah, I I agree. And there's also a bunch of talk of, like, this same replication crisis might be present in the science, in, like, the hard, the quote-unquote hard sciences as well. Uh, Yeah. Because exactly what you're saying, like, grad students are new to this, you're put in charge of an experiment, and a lot of people will say, like, well, bummer. I didn't get the result i was looking for so i'm just going to keep running analyses until i find something that i think looks good
1: yeah and like in my field even though it's uh, a hard science quote unquote uh plasmas are such a pain to work with that if i were to give you the full specs and how i built my plasma experiment and then say here's my resulting electron density at this power and then i gave you all the part numbers and the vendors and the serial numbers and model numbers and everything, you ordered all the exact same parts and then tried to build it in your lab. Uh, being within 50% of the electron density that I had gotten would probably be expected. It being within 20% would be, like, amazing <laughs> for the first go around. Right. Um, and and like, like you said, like, I mean, it's a hard science, yet just reproducing simple things like that uh, before you can start doing the cooler stuff. It's a it's a major challenge in our field as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's I, I, I think that's uh, extremely important to talk about and for people to hear. Um, but so, anyways, I I seem to have a habit of interrupting you. So you you uh, were told that the assumptions you had made um, caused error in your in your model. So you went back,
1: and what happened? Um. So following the evaluation like numerically to show that yes, those errors were quite large. I, um, took a deep dive into gas temperature measurements, which unfortunately means I had to learn some quantum for spectroscopy purposes. And, uh, being an engineer, that was horrific, terrible experience for me. (laughs) Um, it was very much a, a a first, like, what the hell are we taught? Like, what, what am I reading? And then from there, what, can I do to try to get the information that I need to make use of someone else's work? Cause there was no way that I was going to learn enough to actually derive these, uh, like wavelength formulas, mm-hmm. right? Like you can, from first principle predict the wavelengths, which nitrogen gas will emit light. Um, given a certain temperature and that is still amazing voodoo science to me. <laughs> but, uh, what put it in perspective for me was actually I started looking into MIT Open Courseware, and uh, I found a lecture series for a graduate level, which is good, for uh, rotational spect- spectroscopy, which is really just the same, molecular spectroscopy. That's what I cared about. And um, the professor opened up and he said, you know, some people see it, uh, rotational spectroscopy is just a phone book. You say, I'm looking at X molecule, and I need to know which wavelengths, so I look up that molecule in the literature, and I get those wavelengths, and then I measure them, try to match things up. And then he said, but in this class, we're going to learn how to derive things from scratch. And then I was like, oh, wait, I'm just looking for the phone book. It's really just about finding the right sources. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, unfortunately, it's still very difficult, because most molecular spectroscopy leads back to the Germans and the German language, and no translations so, um, fortunately, we actually have a uh, plasma professor in my department who just came from Germany and knew the right people to ask in order to find some translations. And I was able to uh, develop the diagnostic in our lab. And um, after like a four or five month process of just slamming my head into quantum, te- quantum textbooks.
0: <laughs> they finally absorbed. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I (laughs) absorbed enough to know how to implement the calculations into a MATLAB script and then try to forget it as quickly as possible.
0: (laughs) This is one of my favorite stories that you tell for two reasons. One, because I had a similar experience when taking Quantum for Optics where I would read the lecture topic, go to lecture, And then feel like someone had just stomped on my brain for an hour, and have to go and just like listen to a record. Uh, And I same. Well, I can't speak too much for you, but I didn't. I'm by no means like knowledgeable or an expert on quantum um, because it's just such a bizarre topic. And the other thing though is um, is that topic of like you need to find the right people who can help you, you know, for your experiment.
1: So yeah the, um, I think that what I took away from it was like for one, just the notation is really horrible and it, it changed over time. But the other thing is that because this is such a hard a hard process for so many people, no one published their form like their basic formulas that they used to develop their um, spectral simulation. and it, I became so frustrated about it that I realized that like my goal as a grad student, was to make it easily available to everyone else so that they would know my sources and they could go to those original sources. They could just like use mine in a complete package instead of saying like, Oh, we described the wavelengths here somewhat, but we didn't really get into a whole lot of detail about how he did the relative line strengths, which is the other half. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would just cite, they would regurgitate some citations that other people had had, but it still didn't actually lay things out in a clear manner. Um, So that was a really frustrating process to go to spend months just looking through the literature when I did know that I was just looking for the phone book to try to find the right phone book. And then when I did implement it and then, you know, use it all, I had one slide on my dissertation present um, defense where I tried to explain rotational quantum spectroscopy and I laid it out very clearly like i'm an engineer trying to make use of someone else's tool In no way can i answer very many quantum questions let's just talk about wagon wheels spinning in space (laughs) because that was my (laughs) analogy of uh when you consider a molecule and how it um emits light you're really just trying to quantify the angular momentum because that's what i need to know i need to know how fast this molecule is rotating because that's related to the gas temperature right Mm -hmm. and So many things contribute to the angular momentum. The the spinning of the nuclei is the first thing, and that makes sense. But then also the speed at which it's spinning affects the bond length, which affects the light coming out of the dipole. So then that has to be taken into account. But then also the electrons are moving, and they have their own rotational inertia that they're imparting on the whole molecule system, right? So... That's another wagon wheel that's contributing to the <laughs> rotational inertia. And I literally just had a slide. It was like a, um, one wagon wheel. We're only considering nuclear rotation, but then a wagon wheel with two wagon wheels that are smaller attached to it, and now we're considering electron motion. And then the other thing is that electrons have magnetic spin, so that means that each electron has its own little wagon wheel. And um, and like I I I had to like inject humor into it because you know. It's a dry topic otherwise, and um, I didn't want to just throw up Schrodinger's equations and the derivations because I had some of that in my dissertation. Mm -hmm. But, like, there's no – I've been in too many talks like that where people just give you a wall of equations, and unless you already know how they got to their conclusion, like, unless you've already done it yourself and you don't really need to be sitting there, then you're not going to get anything from it, you know?
0: Right. It's so dense dense. and so far over your head
1: that it's just not – useful it just becomes for me in the audience it just comes down to a question of do i trust this person that this math is correct and would check out if i sat down with it for several hours and usually i just go yeah i I imagine (laughs) 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 they have some titles okay
0: (laughs) yeah this was something that we talked about before your dissertation i remember um that it's really hard to like make it interesting uh I, you're, it sounds like you you took a good route. My route, it's, your route's probably better than mine, which was just to use a bunch of Keanu Reeves references. <laughs> uh I don't yeah. actually know added anything to the to the talk. Um,
1: yeah, my my overall theme instead of Keanu Reeves is just uh, like as scientists and engineers and anyone in the STEM fields, you can really boil it down to like we're just monkeys trying to build better tools, mm-hmm. right? Like the microscope enabled a lot of other discoveries and a lot of other tools development um and things that like you just can't anticipate
0: right Uh, the transistor for computers and downstream etc
1: yeah and so uh like the best kind of scientist or engineer develops a new tool like that and part of its luck you know like but then part of it's like hey this seems like it would be useful to a lot of people in ways i can't anticipate but um as a grad student like you shouldn't put that on yourself that you have to have like this mic drop moment where you said, I've developed a brand new diagnostic, for instance, as an experimentalist, that would, that's what it would be. I developed a brand new diagnostic, and uh, everyone sees how awesome it is, and now they're all going to be rushing to use it also, right? Um, the people that I know that have done that, have they were working as like research professors for a long time, um, at least like five years post-grad school, before they came out with, like, their big thing that got cited a million times, you know, and mm-hmm. got catapulted their career into, like, the National Academy of Sciences and everything like that. So um, what was funny is that I had this whole theme of, like, shrinking error bars, which really just means if I'm sharpening a tool, I use the knife analogy. <laughs> and I found some cool uh, scanning electron microscope. Uh, there's a blog out there by a guy that has access to the scanning electron microscope where he just looks at different processes for sharpening knives, whether it's like uh, whetstone first and then stropping and all this stuff. And he gets these beautiful images and like, you could see the deviations in the edge. And I was just saying like fewer deviations, smaller error bar, right. sharper knife. Right. Um, and what was funny is I got to the end of my talk and uh, Dr. Cuomo, who is part of the national Academy of sciences, he had said like, yeah, so you, you originally like started out this talk saying there's two kinds of scientists, the ones that use someone else's tool or someone that, Uh, invents a brand new tool for everyone else. Like, what did you do? And I said, well, I didn't do either of those things. I just sharpened some other tools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still proud of that. So I uh, I,
0: I, I wonder, you know, originally I used to feel like, like what you said, like it's way too much pressure on young students to feel like you have to discover some like brand new big thing and do the mic drop moment. Mic drop moment. But at this point, I'm kind of wondering if it's just, a little bit on them with like having too much hubris, you know, what's, what's your opinion?
1: I definitely think that's true. Like it's, I mean, bachelor kids, like undergrads are kind of the worst. Like it's, (laughs) to me, it's the Donning-Kruger effect, right? Where you go to undergrad and you learn a lot, like you for sure do learn a lot of things compared to like just high school and um, engineers kind of, can be little pretentious shitheads and um, it'll make you think that like, Oh, like I, I not only am I an engineer, I now reach the next level. I'm going to grad school and some of my colleagues didn't do that. And some of my friends didn't do that. Like I'm even better. So I'm going to accomplish something that's amazing when really like most scientists, they need a career of developing experience, you know, before they can just start making free connections and, doing things and i know that people always point to the nobel prize laureates from like back in the day that were doing stuff in their 20s um and that's when they were the most productive but i just don't think that really works <clears throat> nowadays unless you're incredibly precocious or lucky
0: right or both well and there's a lot of arguments in uh, a lot of a lot of people smarter than myself have written papers on this effect of like science seems to be slowing down. And you can argue why that is, but nonetheless it seems to be harder to hit that big thing, right?
1: Yeah. And I definitely think that's true. Um but then on the other hand, like I, I think it's more a problem of understanding the scope of things. Whereas like in my field before, if I wanted electron density, there was one diagnostic. Uh, and it's the Langmuir probe it was invented 100 years ago, and that's how it was for the first 30 or 40 years, right? Um, but now there's maybe a dozen. I I you're probably can't count them all off, but it's it kind of goes to say that like there's more, there's so much more information out there that you need more time to get further into your career in order to start making these connections, right? In order to lead to the next discovery, it's just that it takes us more time because we're silly human beings. We only have so much uh, mental bandwidth.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it takes time to gain that depth. I also wonder if grad school's actually negative for that in the sense of like, all of it is set up so that your motivation and incentives are like, okay, you need to get really specific, deep knowledge in how to do this one thing. And I've done this certainly, and I've witnessed other people do this where it's like, you totally ignore that what you're doing has been done in other fields, right? Uh, or like an analogous, no, sure. like an, like an analogous um, analysis method, maybe. Maybe like a different field, a different type of engineering has done the analysis you need to do, but you just don't know about it because that's not what you're studying,
1: right? Right.
0: Whereas no, if you're in a job, true. you just, you have like, if you're in a job, typically you're going to be like, well, I'll, find what I need from anywhere because I have to or I'll get fired kind
1: of thing. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Um, there's definitely some of that, but like, I I think I was fortunate that I had a uh, advisor that was, he was less about that. Like most of the guys that were coming out of my group, they did a variety of things um, for sure. Only one um, of my colleagues, he had graduated before me. He had, put all of his effort into a single diagnostic is a laser diagnostic. So that make you optics guys happy. And he did find out that like two or three years into it, someone else had already done it um, in a different system. And he was basically just kind of transporting it into the plasma application. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is, I mean, sometimes you do have to like part of that. Sometimes that is just part of learning though. Like you have to redo what someone else had done, and that itself is a challenge, right? Like, it was a challenge for me to learn the quantum in order to do something that several other people had done but not shared how they had done it. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, yeah, that's absolutely true. I just, I also worry that there's so much deep, specific knowledge now in basically every field of study that a lot of things get duplicated, but... We don't know about it in different fields,
1: but that's yeah. I mean, but like what well, to get, like, I don't know. maybe silly, silly uh, hippie vibe going on here. Like why worry about it? Like if science stops <laughs> like <for> that, <laughs> if science stopped today and we were just like, okay, we have our current technology. Let's do what we can with it. Would that be such a bad thing? Like,
0: no, 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 not at all. Um, I'm worrying about it because I, uh, my, my sick robot side comes out and I say, like, well, this is inefficient. Um, yeah. We should, you know, like, instead of wasting time duplicating the same effect in different fields, we should be spending time taking the effects already found or the analyses methods or whatever the case may be and pushing forward our specific field. But that's, again, like, weird... Optimization efficiency hangups. So,
1: yeah, and you might yeah, lose a lot
0: of creativity if you duplicate it in a different field. You might discover something totally new. So I, I don't. There's really nothing wrong with it.
1: Yeah. Um, um, so I think that that kind of sums up my dissertation for the most part. I managed to shrink uh, the electron density error bar from like plus or minus fifty percent to ten percent, um, give or take, depending on which regime you're using it in. And then um, I shrank the surface reaction loss for free radicals from, like I said, factor factor of two to uh, plus or minus 20%. And um, that was still in a very specific condition in a uh, reactor that's meant for, in a a plasma reactor that's meant for, like, physics studies rather than actual application. So turning that into something that if someone was going to say, hey, I need to design a new computer chip and a new a tool for it. Um, what do I need to do? I could give them guidelines um, for the specific materials, but more experience would have to be done. So it was very much like a well, this is still open ended, you know? Right. And that's just science.
0: More, more work to be done.
1: Yeah, always. The, almost, always. Yeah,
0: the, the favorite last slide of uh, students everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so uh not you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but how did it feel? Was it worth it?
1: Um it was kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> it, I kind of finished and it was more like uh the best feeling was just like the reduction in stress. Um I thought that I wasn't stressed out about it because I was already doing other things, but I literally had a dream the night before where I was in an airplane and we lost and our engines failed and we couldn't pull up before some mountains so i literally crashed and burned um <laughs> before going and giving my talk but uh i think that it was it kind of it was definitely worth it in the sense that i appreciate how complicated the world is um and it was funny as i went into a, a different field where i was communicating with non-scientists very often and our culture kind of lionizes science and scientists and thinks that like Oh, if it's an expert talking about something, then there's a lot of certainty behind it. But my whole dissertation was about uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I appreciate a lot more now. Whenever scientists are trying to like hedge a little bit, there's a reason for that. It's because they understand how like goddamn complicated the world actually is, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't want to seem fraudulent by saying something very strongly and confidently, right? Right. Um, this is. And- Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. And then that that, like frustrates people because they just want a straight answer, but there often isn't, you know? And um, it's like you can be a con man and give people all the answers that they want. And that gets you far in this world, apparently. But (laughs) (laughs) um, being a scientist for me is very much like, no, I've chosen the path of like just being honest. And if you get frustrated with having this long discussion about why your numbers are not... What they seem to be as in like, yeah. Now I'm doing analytical chemistry, so i will get to that. But sure, it's really- sure.
0: Well, th- this, I, I, yeah, I want to spend at least a few minutes on this because it's turned into one of my kind of favorite topics, and I I call it scientism, where I think culturally we've moved from an era of like a high demand for religion to explain phenomenon a demand for science to explain things and i think that there's this misunderstanding of like science will explain everything and it'll do it perfectly right
1: yeah yeah i mean like i think that in my field specifically like it would help a lot if error bars were just like a straight up requirement Mm -hmm. like a lot of the things that i was trying to work off that were published They didn't do that. They wouldn't quantify things rigorously. And I was trying to use a tool to enhance the error bars on other tools. So I had to do everything very carefully because I didn't want to, um, introduce more uncertainty by adding another diagnostic. Right. Right. It defeats the purpose. So, so like, uh, yeah, I think that a lot of this would be fixed if error bars were just more common (laughs) because we're all just being honest about how reproducible something is. Right. Um, but I had even spoken with uh, someone without like naming names, but they had said that their gas temperature measurements were plus or minus 5 Kelvin. And most people, when they were using this similar diagnostic, they were saying plus or minus 50, which is a nice round number. I knew that they were trying to be generous and overestimate it because they weren't doing the rigorous analysis. But then when I asked this other guy, like, hey, that's amazing. How did you get 5 Kelvin, like a factor of 10 more certainty, right? And he said, like, well, I was able to visually see... When I changed the simulation, what was a visible difference or not, and and I was like, Ooh. maybe you actually have that much experience, you know? Because <laughs> right. I look at this spectra and I look at another spectra that's supposed to represent something that's a hundred times hotter, I a mean, hundred Kelvin hotter, and I see nothing that I that just jumps out at me as like, oh, there's a hand in the spectra, right? right. <laughs> so like, just being a spike before, you know?
0: But but I mean, isn't assuming that he's correct isn't that inherently turning into a an art form
1: oh yeah and like
0: and, and wait, that's that's one of my big points is that i've talked to people outside the sciences and it's like yeah at some point like what i did with deflectometry at some point it turns into an art form where you're like this isn't right i can't necessarily explain it with all the details right now or i don't care to i just know it isn't right via experience
1: i think of it was less isn't as like uh it's becoming an art form and more like uh, you're becoming experienced enough that you can start relying more on your intuition Mm -hmm. because if you I think that like the human brain is just a fantastic pattern finding machine and if you spend enough time with something even if it's very difficult then you will eventually start to be able to just intuit things and it doesn't mean that you should just trust your intuition um, and assume that it's correct but it's always going to be an interplay between the two because we're not flawless logical things. You know? Right, right.
0: Um, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, and the other thing as well, the other, the other point I wanted to make with that is that I think that there are a lot of... There's a lot of uncertainty in the sciences because the sciences are hard and you're, especially with research, you're constantly trying to discover something new. And at the same time, there's a lot of things that, like, can't and probably shouldn't be in my opinion explained by the sciences but that's a
1: separate topic yeah and that kind of that kind of makes me think about when i asked like why would it be so bad if science just stopped um (laughs) like we all just became caretakers of the science that technology had already been developed like it would devolve into like just total dogma like you can't have a good scientist and that's why the bar for the phd is that you did something new right right it does make sense that like this is a good sign that they could do something new even if it wasn't like earth shattering um
0: yeah the the um associate dean of optics remember when i i interviewed him and we can i'll link to that episode but he said the point of the phd is to to demonstrate that you can solve a new problem like you've you've obtained the skills to figure out how to solve something not solved yet yeah which i thought was a good description um One other thing I want to bring up before we get to, uh, actually it'll be a very nice segue or bridge into the next topic, um, is the concept of how lab courses are taught. Um, So currently, uh, lab courses are typically taught by saying, okay, you're going to do the chemistry lab, for example, if we're talking chemistry or physics, whatever, and here's what you're supposed to do, and you know what the result should be. And I think, in my opinion, that really strongly dissuades people from like what a real experiment is like, where things go wrong, you have to figure out what went wrong, you have to keep revising it, and you get unexpected results. Um, what's your opinion on that?
1: Um, yeah, I didn't read the whole article <laughs> that you <laughs> sent me, um, but it's an interesting idea, and I never thought about it that way. I think that the difficulty is that people are trying to balance that like here's an introduction to chemistry, right? Versus, uh, like we just said, can you solve a brand new problem that just came up? Right? Like those are drastically different things. A freshman chemistry class versus a PhD chemist. Um, and in an ideal world, we can all think as well as the PhDs out there. Not that I claim to think better than other people. Um, But I think it's a balance and like what we had done um, for my introductory plasma uh, lab class in grad school was the first week for a new diagnostic was completely like, yes, it's, it's cooking. Here's the recipes. Can you follow these instructions? It's important that you can follow the instructions because the equipment is expensive and very easy to break. (laughs) Um, And then the second week would be okay you guys have this new diagnostic tool. What's a question that you would like to know? Like, here's some knobs that you can turn. It's open ended, design it, and then take the data. You have, the thing is, it's always gonna be difficult. because You only have so much time for a lab class. Like in undergrad, these, uh, uh, students have other classes that are going on and stuff. So I think that you could argue that they've gone too far in the direction of it being very prescriptive and step, step based. And that's, that is like cooking. It's not science. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want to criticize it too harshly because of time constraints and like, uh, just demands on everyone. Right. Um, as well as like what the student is capable of. Like, I don't want to just say you're a freshman. Okay. Here's a dozen chemicals. Don't eat any of them (laughs) and maybe mix some of them. I don't know. Like, (laughs) Right, like it seems like, I, I guess I, I would like to see a um, a lab that's designed in that other way to the max, right? So I can have a right, right, uh, right. A, a, a gradient scale between here's the completely prescriptive, and then here's the completely like anarchy, right? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's obvious, obviously, there's a balance. Um, I will say that one of my yeah. favorite classes in optics for people uh, at the U of A in the College of Sciences. Matt Dubin taught, or uh, Dr. Matt Dubin taught a class where it's expected that you know kind of the minimum about optics, and then you're just given a project. Like, here's the task, figure out how to accomplish it, which was nice, because it was reflective of reality,
1: so. Yeah, and that's like, I think that that would actually be closer to, like, an engineering, um, right? Like, is it if you already have the goal in mind, then it's closer to engineering rather than
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point for sure.
1: That's totally still like a a far better thing than doing the fully prescriptive.
0: Right. And but you make a great point. Like you can't just unleash students into a lab full of expensive equipment they don't understand and say like figure it out, (laughs) or you're gonna have a real mess on your hands. (laughs) Yeah. Um. So yeah. So you you graduated and you said I'm totally over plasmas. Let's get into chemistry. So what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, so this uh, was another just instance in my life where I was stupid lucky. And um, so my brother was working in the marijuana industry out in Oregon legally (laughs) um, for several years. And uh, as people moved into doing extracts instead of it all being flour consumption, um, the consumer safety became like more and more of an issue, basically. And it's just like any other regulated products, whether it's your beer that you know the alcohol by volume and you can be confident in that. It's not like you're going to go get, crack open a Bud Light and then one Bud Light will get you hammered. Um, <laughs> the quality control is there, yeah, right?
0: That was called Four logo, Chris. One Four logo would get you hammered.
1: <laughs> okay. I didn't learn enough in grad school. I need to go review some things that I should have picked up. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, it's the same thing for the cannabis industry. And uh, one of our business partners, he had spent uh, tens of thousands of dollars just in testing his hemp crop for one year. And so we thought like, well, that's a great business opportunity. If we just purchased the equipment to do this testing ourselves. And this is very much a case of me going from like, I'm a scientist and I can do new things to I'm going to buy someone else's tools and then just run the hell out of it <laughs> and um, try to run a business. So uh, it was kind of interesting, and uh, and to go from figuring things out from the ground up to figuring uh, soft skills out, figuring out manager, uh, managing managing uh, a team of <laughs> <with> people, managing, and <laughs> <managering>. <laughs> and, uh, and so yeah, like what really made me switch is just the I saw it as like a different game to play. Um, I kind of tend to see, view my life as a series of experiments or games and grad school was the full scientist game and now running an analytical chemistry uh business is the soft skills game like how do you run a team how do you sometimes i view my job as like uh rather than being the captain of a ship my job is to be on top of the crow's nest just seeing what's on the horizon Mm -hmm. while other people do the real work but i'm trying to figure out uh like what's coming down the pike from a regulatory standpoint because this whole industry is still very much in a gray area. Right. And um and, yeah, and it's still it's still related to like uncertainty because uh when it comes to that bud light, you know that it's gonna it's gonna be five percent. It's not gonna be plus or minus twenty percent on that five percent. It's probably some really small error bar. But the bar for passing um proficiency tests in Oregon for how strong uh a flower sample is, it's plus or minus 20% relative speaking. Jeez, so it could geez. be, yeah, that means it could be 10% and 12% is correct, and so is 8%. But then that wow. range divided by itself, it's actually like 50%, right? Right. <laughs> From right. the top of the range to the bottom of the range. So,
0: uh, God, that's insane. Um,
1: yeah, but the thing is that uh, I'm learning a lot more about analytical science and biological tissues and stuff like that. and it's going to get better, but it's not going to get significantly better. Um, I think that 10% could be attained and enforced without putting too much of a burden on the labs um, eventually, but it's just a dirty matrix is what we would say. That's the sample um, type and like biological tissue is just always going to be difficult. So regu- regulators know that too, and they try to provide some leeway. So if someone's growing hemp and uh, it tests hot, quote, that means that it had uh, slightly too much THC. And the USDA is trying to uh, enforce that everyone has to report their error bars so that if it tests over the limit, but then under the limit on the bottom of your error bar, then you don't have to destroy the crop. So there is some sanity that's trying to come in, but it takes time.
0: <laughs> right. So this is, I want to get into kind of the specifics, but I I also want to wax poetic for a second about this. Um, This really aligns strongly or resonates strongly with me politically, because I've always advocated for we should just legalize drugs because you have better control over them. Uh, Once you open it up to people like yourself or regulatory agencies to say, like, wait a minute, are you actually getting the drug that you're looking for? approximately at the right strength so i really love this uh topic um before we jump into the specifics do you think that it is helping having having it be regulated do you think that it's improved kind of the quality and the safety
1: um yeah for sure this more so on like the safety i would say because i mean before people were testing for pesticides right mm. and there's a lot of data out there on pesticide consumption for like edible consuming but when it comes to smoking a pesticide and inhaling it into your lungs like those studies just aren't out there like we have no idea what happens Um,
0: right because not too many people were lighting up pesticides and trying to smoke them right
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it's just that like the um usda had been they've done lots of studies on um like crops because we need to know if we're poisoning people you can still argue that like there are absolutely pesticides out there that should not be used period. Um, but we do have pretty good estimates of what's a safe level for consumption. Mm -hmm. So what actually happened when they came up with the action levels for Oregon, um, when it came to pesticides and cannabis, they went to the labs and they said, okay, um, what is the minimum amount that you're able to quantify? It's called a limit of quantification. Um, because you can't measure zero, like, uh, I like to say that and it sounds weird, but it's actually true. Like uh, if I have a scale, I can't measure zero with that scale. All I, all I can say is that when I put that piece of paper on there, it was smaller than the decimal on the scale, right?
0: Right.
1: It's the exact same thing when it comes to pot, or uh, pesticide concentration. So what they did was they went to the few labs that were accredited for and able to measure pesticides. And then they said, okay, what is your limit of quantification? Okay, let's make that the legal limit. Because um, it's orders of magnitude lower than what it would be for a apple, (laughs) like the pesticide content on an apple. Um, and they're just trying to like enforce like a safe limit. And, uh, that means that everyone that was in the labs had to go like, okay, great. You just made our like perfect scenario and our limit of quantification. Like we have to now go below that. So that like, Right, right, market pressure on the labs to get better uh, the uh, diagnostic capability, and um, yeah, basically, I'm I'm looking into getting a uh, it's called LCMS, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. And as I was reading about this, it's also been really fun for me to switch to like a completely different field um, and read about the science there because I didn't know this, but you basically do ion filtering using like. Uh, Electrostatic fields, not static actually, they're RF fields, they're oscillating all the time. But it turns out that the, uh, the fundamental orientation of the device for that iron filtering can also be used to trap the ions, which means it's actually similar to what's used in quantum experiments, because um, they need to trap ions all the time and hold them for long periods. And so that was really funny to me because it put it perspective. It was like, oh, that's why this thing costs so much. It's basically uh, <laughs> a quantum computing device <laughs> like in another world.
0: <laughs> right. Again, the overlap, right, of different fields.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It turn, turns out that the governing equations to describe the ion trajectory and whether it's stable and will make it through this ion filter or not were first described by Matthew, um, but M A T T. H-I-E-U, I think is the spelling. Oh, not not uh, from the Bible. Not from the Bible, <laughs> but still from like the 1800s, I think, or early 1900s. He was trying to describe the stable points on a vibrating drum, like how it collects sand. And yeah, sometimes math is just amazing because wow. it's like, oh, these, these governing equations are the same.
0: <laughs> yeah. Huh. So what... So. So what's the process look like now? What's your day-to-day? You went from, a, from, from research in a lab and now you are in an analytical chemistry lab. What's your day-to-day look like?
1: Um, so I do have, uh, some coworkers that handle them like more day-to-day of sample prep and actually running things. Uh, right now we're trying to get accreditation from the state so that we can be like, have the stamp of approval from the state. But, like, yes, they're doing things correctly. They're not doing fraudulent stuff. And, um, They're giving you somewhat accurate results, right? That 20%. My day to day is mostly like keeping our um, quality control up to spec. So we can, if someone were to come up and say, hey, this test was uh, sampled two years ago, who sampled it? How did they get to that result? Where are those original data sets? Was it manually changed on the final analysis because the finding algorithm was wrong and you saw that as a chemist and you had to change it um, it's a lot of that and then as well as like I said being the guy in the uh, the top of the was it uh, was it crow's nest yeah <laughs> uh, being in the crow's nest just trying to see what's coming down in terms of like the market and what uh, my customers expect because this industry is constantly shifting and it's getting more strict which is both good on the customer side, but then bad on the producer side. Um, so it's a lot of that. Like I I do a little bit of everything. And my first couple of weeks of working in um, in like the startup industry and in startup field and trying to get this all running, I developed a lot more sympathy for my advisor who had missed so many emails going through grad school <laughs> because it's essentially the same thing where he had uh, like a dozen grad students and they all have demands on him. They all need things. And yet he also has to write brands and teach class. So I don't think of it as multitasking because it's, I, I don't multitask, but I'm just constantly bouncing from topic to topic and trying to stay productive <laughs> while doing that, you know? Right. Um, right. So it's been interesting. Uh, I'd say that I've read a lot more regulatory stuff than I would, have ever hoped for or dreamed that I would do when I was younger, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's just a new adventure.
0: So what, uh, what, what did grad school not prepare you for?
1: What did grad school not prepare me for?
0: In the sense of like you graduate, you're going to go get a real job. Uh, are there shortcomings of grad school in that scenario?
1: had to find my own health insurance
0: <laughs> uh, i am still searching uh, so that is a good one <laughs>
1: yeah, I, mean, I mean there's a lot of practical things that like i missed out on because i was only in school for 25 years mm-hmm. almost and i think that a lot of hands-on skills even though i was an experimentalist and i was building my own uh positive devices even a lot of like Basic hand-on things were very humbling from like very early days of starting the um, analytical chemistry thing. So, just as a quick example, I have um, one coworker who he doesn't have a, a college degree, but he's a very like intelligent guy, and he asks the right questions. I knew immediately when I was working with him that when I was teaching him chemistry that he would catch on to things quick. He's been working in this industry as like a trimmer or. Uh, just doing various like build out jobs and things like that. So to uh, shorten this a little bit, we were trying to remove a ramp into our lab that had been used by the previous owners to get heavy equipment in and out. And so I'm using a power drill and removing screws, right? And it's kind of a weak power drill. So it started stripping the screws after they're coming out partially. And uh, my coworker, he wasn't there that day. Um, he already left. And I was like, well, I think I have to go get a tool in order to like draw the screws and then pull them out, you know, like you could tap into it and then pull it out. And I was like, we'll just let this wait until tomorrow. And, uh, my chemist, she says, okay, yeah, I guess so. So then we come back the next day and then, um, <laughs> Jeff is, uh, the guy without the degree. He goes up and then he pulls out the drill bit and then he tightens the drill on the screw itself and then pulls it out. Right. Huh. I watched him do that. And I was like, that seemed super obvious, but I had no experience with that. <laughs> and So he was just doing it with the tools that he had. And I was like, that was humbling. I'm, I'm a doctor who couldn't figure out how to fucking remove <laughs> some screws from wood.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> the number of times that it's been like, man, how did I get a doctorate? <laughs> um.
1: Yeah. So I think that um, it was very quickly, like there are a lot of practical skills out there that you were not taught. And it's, it's fine to be like, uh, just stay humble and be honest with people with where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. And then especially when it comes to like straight business things, uh, I'm very fortunate to have a, uh, another coworker who he's been in the industry for a long time, but he's like more on the marketing side and, um, just understanding that what I would expect from, If I was a a scientist asking for a test result uh, of another analytical chemistry lab, it's completely different from what a farmer is hoping for when they take their crop to get tested. Right, right.
0: right. Yeah, that's, yeah, knowing your customer effectively, right?
1: Yeah, and like, you know, you're taught a little bit of that in grad school in the sense of like knowing your audience during a presentation or knowing your audience when you're writing, and that's a very important thing to learn. but when it comes to like the business world, it's just another, it's just different enough that you don't really think about it. I think Um, you you just, you you resort to the default and what everyone does when they're trying to think about someone else's perspective, they assume that their perspective is everyone else's perspective. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I think that some of the key things that I've learned out of grad school is that recognizing that like, effectively almost every field can become a specialization like without bounds right it can turn into an art and you're kind of like what along what you're saying like the art of knowing customers that's something that i probably underappreciated but that can be something that someone is just like unbelievably skilled at um yeah yeah and and the other thing i was going to say is I think the incentives in grad school are kind of like, you should make your project work. And the incentives i found for business, for a startup, is like you should always be doing something, even if it's not obvious that it's super beneficial. Like if you're ever like, well, I'm not doing anything, it should be like, well, find something to do. Um,
1: but Yeah, I think that what I would say is um, I was lucky in that when I was going through grad school, it was very much like we are trying to make something work. And since I was working with the other grad students pretty closely, it wasn't like a highly uh, uh, divided up setup where I had one project and it was not at all related to someone else's and I couldn't talk about my ideas with them. Um, So I was lucky in that sense. And I did learn to work with other people that were with me on things. But in getting out of grad school, I've had to learn like to manage expectations of other people of my team, right. Say like, Hey, I want you guys to do this. Um, and sometimes I will say, I don't know how I I actually do know how I would do this, but I want you to tell me how you would do it Mm -hmm. because I can't just be making this hyper autocratic system because then it takes up too much of my own time, um, to be micromanaging. Right. And like finding that balance and dealing with some of the frustrations whenever like someone isn't behaving the way that you would have behaved in that position but they have other strengths that you realize that you do not have <laughs> in other positions. And they're just going like, ah, okay, like it's fine. We're a, a team. We're not, if we are all the same person, then this wouldn't work. You know, right. if I just hired right. a bunch of me's. This wouldn't work. Right. Strength,
0: strength and diversity. Um, so would you recommend graduate school? Who would you recommend graduate school to?
1: I would, yeah, I would recommend graduate school to, like, anyone that's interested in doing something that's uh, new but needs the level of expertise that's necessary, right? Because you could start a business without having any degrees, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if you're interested in saying, like, hey, I really like this type of technology and I want to make it better or I want to change it to, or apply it in some other way, I do think that grad school is useful for getting that level of like learning how to make connections or someone that's clearly they're, they're going to need to have the skill of like self-taught learning at a high level in order to accomplish these other things. Then, yeah, grad school makes sense. Um, if it's something that if it's someone that is not super set on saying like I care deeply and it's highly meaningful me- meaningful to me to do something new, uh, I just want to have a steady job and retire at a reasonable age and support my family. And it's like, no. Nah, like, you know. <laughs> just do college, I guess. Or maybe not in that, right? Like, right. Uh, right. Uh, I think that I'm glad that I did it, but I also am not... Uh, I'm very honest about like what I missed out as well um, in terms of practical experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's not just uh, all one or the other. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So with that, I think that it uh, pretty well covers the topic. Um, there's one final edition. That's going to be a new uh, aspect of this podcast that I blatantly ripped off from another podcast. I really liked uh, called um, conversations with Tyler. So I'll link to that as well. But before we jump into that, is there any other topic that you want to cover?
1: No. Um, yeah. I think we uh, talked a lot about a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: succinctly said. Um, So the new addition to the podcast is overrated or underrated um, and basically I'm just going to rapid fire throw out some topics to you and you can say whether you think they're overrated, underrated, or rated correctly or of course feel free to uh, skip them.
1: Sound good? Do I have to like is this just going to be like uh, a rapid fire round where I, why I, I'm not like justifying these things, or I'm just we're just going from one to the other?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, feel free to justify it. I'm secretly, of oh, course, okay. scoring you along the way, and then at the end, I'll tell you if you failed or passed. So no pressure.
1: Okay. What's, Does this is if I ever come back?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's my level of respect for you is purely based on your answers here.
1: <laughs> okay. Perfect.
0: Um, yeah. So first off, uh, reading fiction
1: underrated. How come? Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did, I, you know that I read a lot and um, I wish that I would read more even. Um, but I think that like reading is uh, so much more than simple entertainment compared to like television, which is the common thing that people will compare to cause it's still t- storytelling, right? If I go watch Netflix um, compared to reading, I think that reading fiction in particular um, is just excellent at training your brain at like empathizing with other people. It's if it's a book that you're enjoying and you're identifying with the character, even though that character is not you inherently it's practice at doing that at at understanding someone else's perspective. Right. Um, Yeah. And yeah, it can open up new perspectives and ways of seeing the world that are incredibly useful. Um, If it's a high impact book, then I've had books that's I would say, actually, like, significantly changed my life, so.
0: Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. I've had conversations with a number of people who disagree and think that fiction is far too overrated, but I, I think that it has an ability to really um, provide some really great lessons and stories and morals, et cetera, that otherwise are too dry to just deliver in nonfiction. Um, after Virtue might be the case in point, right? <laughs> yeah i I read five pages of it today i was proud of myself for that as you should be um all right next up is uh hip-hop music
1: or rap uh i've rated correctly i guess like i listen to some but i'm not an expert in it so i'm not gonna have a strong opinion
0: Sure. So you, so it's, it's appropriate. What about classical
1: music then? Uh, I can't listen to classical music very much. <laughs> um, I think that like, if you're talking about like whether or not to evaluate as an art form, like, yeah, I think that like hip hip hop and rap is absolutely like, uh, an art form that you should take just as seriously as classical music. But then in the pop setting, it's overrated in the sense that like, I care, I care a lot about lyrics. And so the type of um, uh, music that I like, like to listen to has really interesting storytelling that's in a clever, like, uh, lyrical way, right? But if you look at most pop today, it's all, like, the same three top, I mean, hip-hop that's in the pop culture today, it's the same three topics of, like, sex, drugs, partying, right? right. Money. <laughs> um, so, like, you had touched on, like, uh, morals and stuff. In the fiction question so it's, it, to me it's the same thing like I judge the value of something by whether or not it teaches something that's useful for your life
0: mm-hmm. um, so, so, so you're, you're yeah. more of a fan of um, MF Doom than you would be of perhaps Kanye West for example
1: yeah um, I haven't listened to a whole lot of MF Doom but I, I grew up listening to like Atmosphere and like sure. <laughs> okay. Common these guys that will tell like a full story
0: yeah, I mean, fantastic storytelling and and like moral lessons. But um, yeah, I I agree strongly. That's interesting. You don't like classical? There's a there's an album that I'll have to share with you. I just listened to. It's Latin classical. I think you might like it.
1: Um. Uh-huh. Yeah, actually, um, I <laughs> I thought about taking like a course on it because one of my uh, high school friends who's one of the dumbest people I had ever known um, <laughs> <laughs> I ran into him a couple years later and he was like yeah I listen to classical music now because I I took a course on it. I really appreciate it like I took a um, a music class on like the history of American uh, pop and rock and that made, made me really enjoy uh, like appreciate jazz and blues more um, but maybe I just need to like intellectually enter into something before I just listen to it and get like good or bad you know?
0: yeah yeah i mean it it took me a while to get into classical admittedly but um i'll, I'll put a link as well to this i guess i should of course because i'm mentioning it on the podcast but the album's called la passion siguen san marcos it's uh it's a real blast um all right overrated or underrated taking personal time if you are just you're getting stressed uh you just need some personal time what's your opinion
1: I'm trying to think about like the average person. Um, I think it's underrated in the sense that people don't value their own spare time. Right. Like I, as you know, I wrote this essay about the average American and how they spend their time. (laughs) And um, like, there's a lot of unfortunate statistics that like the CDC will put out every year, like how families will spend, uh, I think it's like three or four times more time watching TV than directly interacting with their kid. Um,
0: well, that's because that's TV like is far more interesting like, than your kid, right?
1: They, well, yeah. Like, I mean, Netflix <laughs> has got its game, you know? Like, they know they know what you want. The kid does know. <laughs> Jesus.
0: <laughs>
1: that's the way of putting it, right? Like, your kid doesn't have, uh, like, gigabytes of data on what you prefer but Netflix does right. that need. Yeah. Um, very,
0: very Orwellian. Um,
1: yeah, man, that's a scary thought. So, uh, <laughs> no, I do think that like people will undervalue underrate their own free time. And that like, uh, people are working a lot more these days and it's a bummer and like the way that our economy is run That's kind of demanded of you um, to work more than 40. But, uh, Like having downtime that actually helps you recuperate for the next like effort to me is about like choosing high value downtime, right? And rating it correctly. Um, And not that I'm like this monk who (laughs) goes and runs a business and then comes home and doesn't watch Netflix, you know.
0: Right.
1: Um, Yeah, I think that that's it in general. Free downtime is underrated by most people. And that's a bummer.
0: But at the same time, at the same time, I I think that you, or we've discussed this before, you value, um, you kind of value challenging yourself, right? So how does that balance in?
1: Uh, no, it definitely does when it comes to like, and uh, obvious example, is just exercise, right? Um, if you're not challenging yourself, then you're not really doing a lot when it comes to exercising and training and stuff. Um, but I do like in my uh, old age, <laughs> post-grad school, I do think a lot more about like trying to limit how many challenges that I give to myself. So um, especially being, you know, new year's just passed. Uh, I had, I think it's probably pretty common among like go getting students and engineers that we think that we can just take on a whole bunch of new habits all at once. Um, And they might all be good things that would actually improve your life, like cooking for yourself and exercising every day and meditating in the morning and reading for an hour. But like trying to do them all at once you almost, I, anyways, I'm, I'm weak and hopeless. (laughs) I inevitably (laughs) fail at enacting all those habits uh, simultaneously. So I do think that it's good to have some kind of element of challenge. If it's, if it's something else that you're interested in, whether it's picking up a new instrument or whatever, um, but not trying to take on too many challenges in your downtime. That it's it, as soon as it starts becoming like a negative reflection, you start reflecting yourself negatively for missing out on some of these habits. Like it's time to cut back, or uh, maybe go listen to some David Goggins and man up.
0: <laughs> Perfect. I'll be sure to link to that uh, to David Goggins as well. <laughs> um, so I only have a few more, uh, but but hopefully they're interesting. Uh, the keto diet.
1: <laughs> oh um dang did you ask me that because you know that i tried it
0: yeah
1: oh okay um
0: yeah I, I, was- I asked it to you because i know that you're knowledgeable on the topic i'm not going to ask you what your opinion is on some diet that you know nothing about
1: <laughs> okay yeah all right I, I mean i didn't expect like these questions to be like just to everyone it's just like what the hell all right but um yeah, I think that it's actually rated probably pretty accurately um, depending on who you're getting your information from. So some people will be like, oh, it, it fixes all the problems out there from cancer to um, diabetes. And then there is some evidence out there that it could actually help when it comes to traditional treatments and like, the major things that uh, is plaguing American society, right? Um, and I had done it for about... four four to six months, I want to say, because I wanted to give it like a solid try. I knew that there was a big uh, adjustment period. Um, I will say that I definitely slept better and I still missed that. But my um, overall blood uh, triglyceride level went up. And when I was like doing research about it and listening to people that do active research, like clinical research about the keto diet, they had said that for whatever reason, some people are just predisposed to if they switch to a high-fat diet like that, their numbers get worse since about ten to twenty percent of the population, whereas most people's numbers will get better um, compared to the standard American diet. So, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting experiment, but um, I think it's rated appropriately in the sense that some people are. It, it's it's a gray area. Like more research needs should be done. Um,
0: right, and it has some benefits for some people, but perhaps not
1: for everyone yeah and it's one of these things where like if i did get diagnosed with cancer i would probably switch to it immediately because i would say well like (laughs) that's a bigger threat than triglycerides right um and i think there is some good evidence that having standard cancer treatments in conjunction while being on the keto diet can help Hmm. um yeah all
0: right and then uh one of the last ones um Staying, quote, up to date on political news or generally following politics. Overrated or underrated?
1: Yeah. Uh, I, you know that, like, I struggle with this a lot. Um, so now I'm just going to riff on it for a bit and then <laughs> come to a conclusion. Please. Yeah. That's I'm why I asked for a that. while. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to meander for a bit. Uh, so I started out being. Um, I'm one of these people that gets very interested in the topic, and I'll do a deep dive into it uh, for months at a time. And so, before the 2016 election, I did that, and I thought that like everyone should do that as being part of a good citizen and understanding how to vote. And like, then after the election, um, I didn't think the world had ended, but I still felt like, well, maybe voting is like the bare minimum, and actually, real change only happens at like the grassroots, like mobilization level, and, like you know, you can point to the civil rights movement. Everyone does that. Um, you point to the anti-war movements and that kind of thing. And you're not going to ever reach that level of actually taking action. Um, unless you are acquiring information, right. Um, to motivate you.
0: Right.
1: But then on the other hand, um, I can get too stressed out about it. And I have lost nights thinking about politics and like the horrible things that go on in the world. Um, with our like implicit like, uh, approval. Right. Um, cause it's kind of the attitude that if you don't take action then you're maybe not complicit, but like you're contributing in some small way mm, right. um, to some kind of injustice. So lately I've come down to, uh, just kind of, it's like a diet it, I, I don't, I don't spend hours anymore um, reading the news. Uh, I pick a rundown and then if I'm interested in some other things or there's a, a particular topic that I want to know more about, then I'll check out some more sources on that. But I think that uh, in general, the news is overrated in the sense that uh, even the news sources that I consider good, they don't give you enough context to make like a truly informed decision. And that's an unfortunate reality of, the complexity of the world that we live in today it's not like the 1700s when you could be like i need to know about shipping (laughs) or right (laughs) like and farming i guess right Um, grain storage (laughs) yeah but now it's it's like uh to think that someone some talking head can go up there and explain the economy in a five minute segment and why they're right it's like that's Either a ridiculous or b kind of insulting, right? Um, to the other people that are, spend their careers working on those problems. Um, so I've kind of come down to this, I've come kind of come, come around to the conclusion that reading the occasional nonfiction about topics that you're interested in that has to deal with history um, or politics is probably a lot more valuable, than just getting a shotgun blast of little tidbits on everything.
0: Right, like the, the short, uh, bite size. Here's here's all the answers you need to know.
1: Yeah, and like I, I did I do think that even the people that uh, will try to present the facts and then give their opinion on the facts, it's still kind of uh, demeaning to think that like I, you're you're basically assuming that the audience isn't capable of thinking. <laughs> right. Um, to a logical conclusion, right? So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I broadly yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that, um, I recently, I think I mentioned this too. I recently, my dad and I were having a discussion about an aspect of the civil war and we both had differing opinions and we realized that it was basically like whatever bare minimum we learned in high school about the civil war. Yeah. And, uh, so we bought this hefty, hefty book and read it. And it was, it was like, wow, we both were totally ignorant. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's generally going to be the case, like almost always, right? Um, I'm an expert in a very specific thing. But I like most people have this habit of behaving as if they should have a strong opinion on everything that's discussed in politics, right? right. Um, I just think that that's kind of silly unless you've done that effort to read multiple things about the entire context of that particular topic. Um,
0: right. And I think that there's almost no incentives to do that in our culture.
1: Yeah. And like, I also think that when it comes back to like the whole activism thing, uh, I'm even, I think that that's overrated depending on the person in the sense that I had gone to protests and things and I don't anymore because, uh, I kind of view change as like, you could either expend a lot of effort on this, Policy change that may or may not come about, and it might make have like a, have a huge impact on a lot of people. Or you could just say, "Hey, what can I do to help an individual that happens to be in my community?" Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had volunteered while I was in grad school, and I'm kind of moving that more in that direction when it comes to like political uh, action. In the sense that, like, you know, there's things that people suffer from, like just on my block, and if I can reach out in, in my spare time. And uh, help them in that way. It kind of relates back to like why I picked uh, my field in plasma science. Like I'm getting a more immediate payoff again um, in the sense of like, hey, I helped that individual. Cool. Rather than I spent hours or weeks or months going to protests and trying to contribute to this policy change, which may or may not happen.
0: Well, and and one other thing to add to that, in my experience, if you contribute to to a movement or a protest. Uh, it can be really disappointing at the end of the day what gets enacted, right? Like, it can be a complete bastardization of what you wanted, whereas if you do what you're saying, uh, which I would, I would kind of argue falls under the umbrella of, quote, effective altruism, which I'll link to, it's your action. So, like, you choose to do something and this action gets done instead of entrusting other people to affect the change that you're hoping to have affected.
1: Yeah, and, like, that definitely goes towards, like, <clears throat> um, it's more uh, empowering in the sense that you're more responsible, right? Like, if when I, I was I was volunteering um, with uh, kids at a uh, woman's domestic violence shelter, and it was like, yeah, like, I'm more directly responsible to this outcome for these kids than if I was, like, one of a crowd, like, at a protest. Right, right. Protest against uh, lax domestic violence uh, like enforcement laws and stuff like that, right? So
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, well, I don't want to close on on such a serious topic. So the last overrated, underrated is dancing.
1: Oh, I was hoping you going to say weed. <laughs> um, <laughs> dancing. Yeah. Terrible dancer. So...
0: But is it overrated
1: or underrated? By like the culture at large?
0: Yeah. I I'm I I'm gonna give my answer really quick, okay? And then yeah, yeah. and then I want to hear your opinion. I think that it's grossly underrated because I think that it's formalized in a way that doesn't actually uh incentivize like most people don't really dance. I think, especially in school or at our high school ages, uh, it was like a weird pseudo swing type of dancing. And there's so much to explore in different dance forms, like salsa or swing or ballroom, etc. That can be really rewarding. Um, and I think that culturally, we we just a don't appreciate it, and b. Um, a lot of people are discouraged from doing it. Males in particular. Um, yeah. And on top of that, the one other thing I want to add is that this concept of like being bad at dancing. Uh, I always viewed it that dancing is such like a pure expression of, of like joy that there shouldn't really be. Obviously they're like extremely skilled dancers, but for personal dancing, I just, I think that like good or bad shouldn't, shouldn't be applied to people who are just out there enjoying themselves.
1: I think that no, I think they could still apply because, like, you can because <laughs> it's an expression, and that's true. But like, you can be bad at expressing yourself, right? Like, if you can be bad at speaking and emoting, then you can be bad at expressing yourself in like purely physical form, the way it dances. But I will also, i still agree that like dance is underrated in the sense that like I wish that it was viewed more as a way of playing, like it's it should just be viewed that way. Like it's, it's one of the few activities that it's, um, it's playing with another person as your partner, but, um, it's not competitive the way that like sports are right. Like I think that our culture has kind of moved away from like play as its own rewarding activity. We're kind of more just like competing or, uh, purely just trying to get the end aesthetic goal. And I think about working out like, the guys will go in and just lift weights without playing a sport is like, that's like baffling to me because it used to be that playing the sport was the main thing and then lifting weights is the accessory to make you better at the sport. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That was like a complete tangent. Anyways, dancing underrated. I'm still terrible at it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. And now truly the last one, because I am, I am uh, curious to hear your opinion. Uh, weed overrated or underrated?
1: Yeah. I said that, and then I I realized I didn't actually have an opinion yet, Um, so you got to (laughs) think about it, too. Okay, so I think that it's overrated by the people that are heavily involved in the industry and think that it's a panacea to everything, right?
0: But that Um, that existed before the industry, right? There exists this culture of, like, uh, I would argue, pseudoscience, where weed can cure all the ills of humanity.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then I think that it's a good thing that expectations are hopefully going to be brought more in check once we're like once researchers are more able to do the actual like clinical studies um, more easily without having to jump through all the DEA hoops, right? Um, and in yeah. the meantime, I'm fine with cashing in on the overhype, right? <laughs> 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 on the overrated stuff. Um, but yeah, like on a personal level, I think that it's probably under I think it's by most people I think the re- weed is probably rated appropriately as like you know it's something that can help you relax or just have fun but that's sort of the same as like uh, other mind altering substances like alcohol and it shouldn't just be used all the time um, unless you're a high functioning person because <laughs> I know a lot of people and I work with that who can um, function more than I can, so yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, in a scientific perspective, it's over overrated. Um, in a cultural way, I think it's rated appropriately, um, but we should still legalize everywhere.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, with that, thank you for taking the time to uh, to talk to us, um, and uh, yeah, look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Spotlight Report. As always, we invite you to go to our website, community.eleoptics.com, where you can communicate and discuss this episode of the podcast and find all other episodes of the podcast, as well as other useful information. Thanks. Have a great day.